All right, welcome to the Zero to Traction podcast, a, a, a show entirely about how first-time founders can create companies that scale. I'm one of your regular co-hosts, JDM, a.k.a. Josh David Miller, and I'm here with my other regular co-host, Cameron Law. How are you, Cameron? I'm not drunk. I'm doing good, 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 my friend, JDM. It's good to be here, excited for this episode today and looking forward to, to diving into the conversation yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to have a bit more clarity and poise in my speak for the rest of in my speech for the rest of this recording as I fail spectacularly yet again. I record things for a living. I don't know what's going on here. This is a it's a hot mess. It's just because you're making me record on a Sunday. That's what's going on here. It's because we're recording on That's a Sunday. That's it. That's it. You know, here we go. But I'm actually super excited because we've got even though it's only the two of us today, we don't have any guest co-hosts coming on. We'll have them back soon. But we do have a really fun topic that honestly doesn't, I think it's getting short shrift in the startup conversation. That's this idea of team. You know, we have this this intuitive understanding of how important team is because, you know, you need teams to get things done. And everybody knows that there comes some time when they think that they you know, need a, a co-founder and then they start thinking about team and all of that. But it's actually so much so more central to that. I just don't think we talk about it enough. So I'm really excited. We've got a great show today. So, you know, Cameron, k- kick us off here. Why, why are we spending a whole show talking about team? Why are we talking about team? I love it. Well, and I just building on where you kind of kicked off the conversation, it sometimes is the question asked after, you know, if I, if you think of some of even the tools that are taught, teams not even on some of the lean True. canvases and things like that, which is an interesting element as we're, I'm kind of looking at it and thinking about it right now. But, you know, I think the, the best way to look at why a team matters is the data. You know, at the end of the day, data speaks for itself. When we're looking at the, the realm of why team matters in startup success, well, let's start looking at why why startups fail, and you know, sixty five percent of startups fail due to founder conflicts, and that's just such a core challenge for startups and succeeding. It's already a hard journey to see if there's a there there, but right. really, it comes down to the people that are doing that work. And so, really thinking of your startup as the people that are trying to move this idea and this thing forward. And so, just reiterating that statistic: sixty five percent of startups fail due to founder conflict. So it's a really key element in why we're speaking about it today. That's also when we, yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, most um, startups. <laughs> that's, right? in, that's insane. It's, a, yeah, it's nuts. So, and then, you know, really looking at that, where some of these conflicts come from, diving in deeper is you have 80% of startup experience equity disputes among founders. So that's one of the core challenges is when you look at these founder conflicts, it's really looking at how they're breaking up the equity and, you know, really the opportunity of when you hit a success, who, how are the, you know, the rewards of that going forward. But I would also think, and we'll talk about this later, is the equity is not just necessarily who owns the most amount of the company, but also it's a demonstration of who they believe is creating value for for the startup, which is really getting into the, the personal side of the business. And then just a couple elements here around the, the, the challenges of team. Um, 8% of startups failures can be attributed to founder burnout. And that might seem like a low number, but that's ultimately stemming from a lot of these other issues and you know directly is attributed to that burnout element. That's also port, uh, part of maybe you're the only founder trying to push it forward. And so do you have the capacity to move that idea forward and not bringing people on? And then the last element here is really looking at the diversity of your founding team. And you know how does that actually play a role in your 
entrepreneurial success. And so when you look at building diverse teams, they dramatically outperform homogeneous teams. And so only, but with the challenges currently, only 17% of startup founders are women and minority representation within those businesses. And so really looking at building that diversity, both from you know ethnicity, gender, but also that bringing in that diversity of thought. And we'll talk more about kind of the elements there. But I know we've talked about the doom and gloom here of kind of the bad. Yeah, we're going to start teams, this but, on a down. You know, and usually, usually I'm the optimist. So I'm going to throw it to you. He was usually the, the pessimist to, to talk a little bit about, you know, how, what role can team play in taking a team to that next level and actually creating that entrepreneurial success and building that successful startup. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of doom and gloom in there, you know, but <laughs> I, I don't think it's too surprising to talk about the doom and gloom because we all know that like 95% of startups don't last beyond five years. So we, we all know that, that most, the vast, 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 vast majority the 19 startups out of 20 don't last through their fifth year. So of course they have to fail for some reason. So these, these statistics probably sound worse than they are just because most startups already are going to fail. You're probably going to fail anyway. So fail due to team. But that's actually where there's a flip side of the coin because it's usually the idea that our our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness in, in anything that we're working on. And team is no exception to that. Team is the number one killer of startups or at least the derivative of the number the, of the number one killer of startups. And so that also means that on the flip side it's also something that is an extraordinary strength. So for example, if you have a, a startup team that is composed, ideally, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later, then you are much more likely to succeed. Just as a couple of examples, if you have just the numbers on your side, if you've got two or, or three founders on, on, a, on a team, you're far more likely to succeed than if you're just running, running solo. And that depends on stage and everything. But, you know, it, it, takes a, it takes a community to make this thing run. So, you know, if you get two or three people, you're better off than you are, than you are by yourself. If you have, you know, some some other experience on the team. If you're able to get some, either you or get some people on your team that have prior startup experience, then you have almost a 15% higher chance of success. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but you got to just take all these little think all these little things and stack the odds in your favor. And one of the things that's really often neglected is this idea of an advisory board and the startups that are able to get that outside guidance that are able to talk to people who have expertise in the things that you need to be expertise like an expert like that you need that expertise in whether that's industry expertise or startup expertise or or operations or or manufacturing or like whatever it is that you need expertise in if you're able to get those and have conversations with them you have a 29% higher chance of success you know, in that we're just getting started. There's, there's a lot more that we could do that. The point is that team will either kill you or it'll make you. And so this episode is going to be all about how you could turn team into in the process of, of making it. And so I think one of the most common questions that I get about team by I probably by like, I don't even know several times the next question in, in the list is, you know, where, do, where, where can I find my co-founder? And it's usually a non-technical founder asking, where can I find a CTO? I need a technical co-founder to build it. So Cameron, how would you kind of approach that question? Yeah, so I think, I mean, it, it's one, I think it, it's starting with them even recognizing they need to have a team. So a lot of times even founders come in and they want to just run the show and, and build the business. And I think, you know, you mentioned earlier was just it, the odds are against you if that's the case. And so it's a great place to to start in terms of asking the question, but often it's, do you need a technical person or what that might be and where do you 
where do you go? And so it's thinking about asking what the right question of where do you need to get to in terms of your your kind of next steps of as a as a startup. And so thinking that it's not just to check the box of I need this technical co-founder, but is that person willing to get into the trenches and actually build that relationship with you to to take that startup to the next level? And so I think that that's really for me is really diving into the question more deeply is it's not just about finding a body to be a co-founder, but finding that right co-founder and really understanding what skills you bring to the table and what skills complement you in getting started. For me, is really one of the, the main elements of that, that kind of first common question that, that we get as, where do I find that co-founder is a really key thing. Yeah. And I think the, 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 win, the how do I find a co-founder is in some senses begging the question. It's it's jumped to the conclusion that I need the co-founder, that I need a co-founder right now and that I need it to be a technical co-founder right now. And I right. don't think that that's always known. Like, I, I don't think that that's always right, I guess is what I'm saying. As an example, you're just getting started and you have an idea. It's a cockamamie scheme, but it seems cool and it's for an app. And you're like, okay, well, now I'm going to need a CTO to, to build this thing. Well, like, no, you don't. No, you really don't because building this is the last thing that you should be doing right now. If it's an app and it's not doing something extraordinarily technically complicated, which you almost certainly are not doing, then the the feasibility question is just not even interesting because building apps is not hard, right? We build apps all the time. Apps is not hard. So the hard part is how do I prove that there's value there? How do I create demand for the thing that I can build? Because if I can build demand for it, the the thing itself is pretty is pretty easy. And so there's a lot of work that you can do as a co-founder or as a founder before you get to that technical step. And there may be, depending on what you're working on, a time when you need that technical co-founder before other co-founders. Like if you're able to do some early validation on your own, you're starting to get some customers interested, it actually might make sense to start bringing on a co-founder, hack together an MVP because you can bootstrap and kind of move on from there. But it might also be that, you know, you're able to hack something together, no code, and now you need somebody who can augment you in another way, like with sales or uh, or something else where to help you get letters of intent in the, you know, for the businesses that you're targeting. And so the the win question, I think, is, is much more complicated, but jumping to it's an app, therefore I need a CTO from day one, I think it's just, it's just, it's just folly. And it's up to you to figure out wh- what is the right time to, you know, to bring in, to bring in talent. Well, I think just building on from, you know, our past segments, it's really looking through that lens of what is your riskiest assumption? And from day one, isn't necessarily the technical feasibility component. It, it It's really, is there a there there in terms of this problem is out there and there's this amount of customers that actually have this problem? You don't necessarily need a technical person and likely that technical person doesn't really have the skill set to go out into the market and have those conversations in a way that maybe someone that's more business focused. And so we've, we have been talking about it kind of from, I would say, a founder's perspective who has the idea that's maybe a little more business centric than someone that's a technical co-founder. And we do, you know, have technical co-founders that maybe don't have that skill set. And maybe that's something that you do need to think about is if you don't necessarily have the, the confidence to go have some of these conversations, finding maybe that person to do that. But really, from day one is really looking at it from the lens of what are those core assumptions early on that are going to break your business? And that's where, you know, it it might be the right starting point, or maybe it's not because technical components don't matter that early on in the startup venture. 
I like that idea of thinking about your team needs from the same perspective as we think about experiments, you know, with what's your riskiest assumption and is bringing on that talent going to support you in validating those risky assumptions? And if, if yes, woohoo. And if no, then you're probably, you know, wasting your time and, and wasting their time. And by the way, they're probably not going to be very interested either. And so there's a question of how do you even get them, you know, interested if, if you're not even, if you can't even demonstrate that you're onto something yet. But I do feel like because it is the most common question, we do have to answer it. So let's actually, so let's actually answer the questions. You know, how do you go about the process of finding a co-founder? What does that, what does that look like? It's, it's a, it's not an easy one. I think it's a, there's no silver bullet solution, I would say. But I think, you know, for me is really, and you know, I'm an ecosystem guy and I really rely on ecosystem, but I think part of it is putting yourself out into the community and engaging in different offerings. I think part of that, though, does come with a vulnerability of sharing what you're working on. I think a lot of times as a founder, you hold your idea so dearly and you you know you need to bring someone on and you want to bring someone on, but then you're like, how do I do it if I don't tell anyone what I'm working on or asking for that type of support? And so, you know, one of the, the usual places in JDM probably knows where I'm going here with 1 million cups, but really a great place and forum. And there's many types of different events out there for founders to connect with each other. But it really, I think, starts with the element of being open to sharing what you're working on and asking for what you need. And often I think those relationships aren't always saying, I need a co-founder to start. It's saying, I need someone to be an advisor or someone to mentor me in this space. And then bridging that relationship into a more formal relationship. It's just like you know, I would say dating, you know, I, I've, I haven't dated in a long time since my, my fiance and I started dating in high school 12 and a half years ago. So, so I haven't really been in that space, but you know, in terms of the, the dating relationship, you, you meet people and then you make that commitment later on. And so I see that very similar in the, in the founder journey was starting to, to build those relationships and seeing if they have the right skill sets that mirror yours the last element that I put on that is there is a self-inventory that I think needs to be done as a founder um, when you're going to identify those needs. So are you more of a, a business-focused person that's going to be doing the pitches and meeting and talking to customers, or are you more of that technical person and, and putting yourselves in spaces that they're not usually at? You might not have a ton of technical people that are attending the startup happy hour because they're they're not extroverted. They may be at different types of events. And so finding those places where they might be engaging and starting to build those relationships and having that confidence to share what you're working on, because that's the only way someone can figure out. You have anything to add or or amend there, JDM? Well I think I think that's that's totally right. I, I think the 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 problem that you're calling out is that there is a complex, substantive relationship that's developed between co-founders. That it's not this idea of dating. It's this idea of marriage, right? There's the, you're, you're, you're serious. There's a commitment that you're spending all day with these people. It's a big deal. And the problem I think that you're calling out is that trying to say, I need a co-founder for this thing I'm working on right now is basically the equivalent of saying, I want to have a baby tomorrow where can I find myself a wife? <laughs> right. And it's like, it's like, well, I think you're you're jumping ahead a few steps. You're gonna have to take a step back. That that baby ain't ain't coming tomorrow if that's the way you want to make it. Or it might, but it's probably gonna be against all of everybody, everybody's advice for the way that you should approach that process. So the that because of that, you have to then be nurturing these relationships long before you need them. And it's a cliche, but we say your network is your net worth. And that's that's true. And you want to have a this this 
I don't know what the modern equivalent of this is, but we still use the metaphor of the Rolodex for these people who's- it's a good one cont- Yeah, it's just kind of lame because I think probably half our listeners have it's never like seen CR- a It's like your CRM or something like that. Right, like, it's like this seems so douchey like to say, like, you just want to have a CRM, a potential co-founder. So, yeah, it just feels wrong. But anyway, but you do want to have this Rolodex because of this names of people that you've been that you've been working with for a while because those could be co- those could be co-founders they could be advisors they could be you know and, and mentors for you they could be employees they could also just know people that right. you know that can recommend and so if you could develop a good relationship with somebody and there's trust there and mutual respect there then you know they're more likely to connect you with things and so I think as you're going through this process of going to all, like all the events that you mentioned Cameron as you're doing that you're going to these places and and, and creating value because that's how you actually right. develop relationships you don't you don't go there and just hang out you go there and you create value you find ways of creating value and a program like one million cups which is where founders come and every wednesday at 9 a.m we hear two presentations from startup founders they get six minutes to talk about what they're working on followed by 15 to 20 minutes of advice questions and, and feedback from an audience of their peers so if somebody's just like coming to this event every single week, which takes nothing, it's on freaking Zoom for us here in Sacramento, then, you know, you can just, the value you can add is just by asking good questions. And as you do that, as you show up there, you're going to develop those relationships naturally that can pay off really big dividends in the long run. And if you wanted an even better way to add value, you can join the organizer team and actually create social media posts and, and do things like that to help out. And that's, it's the, it's a long game, I guess, is my, is my point. You're not playing, co-founders are not, it's not a short game. It's a long game. Well, I think one of the ideas that just came up for me was really putting your idea out there and what you're working on. You might find someone that's working on something similar. It might not be the same exact solution, but it might be similar problem. And then now you have someone that has at least an understanding of that space and that kind of builds some of those relationships. And so I'm very like pro on putting putting it out there in the ether that you're working on this thing, not with a direct ask of I'm looking for a co-founder, but hey, I'm looking and building this thing. And anyone that's interested, I want to engage and, you know, connect with, because that's when you're going to build those connections and put yourself in the environment that's going to advance that going forward. And you ultimately have people, you know, say like myself, where, you know, I feel like I have a fairly good pulse on what's going on in the ecosystem and the startups. And I could say, hey, you know what? Someone's working on a similar thing. You two should connect and explore what that might look like. And so you have that kind of ecosystem conspiring to support you in fulfilling your startup dreams. So, yeah, I, I definitely, definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, as you're starting to bring, you know, bring people on, there's a, there's a mistake that people make. It's just, it's just a pet peeve of mine. So I'm just going to throw it out there. And then Cameron, you can take us and move on. But one of the things that annoys me is as people are starting to bring on co-founders, there's this element of make-believe involved that really just annoys me. The stereotype of this, I think, is when you're listening to a startup pitch and you get to the team slide and they have five or six people on their team which at a certain stage is probably fine. But for most of these companies that I see that for, it's far too early for five or six people. That's a yellow flag, not a red flag, but it's a yellow flag anyway. But beneath every single one of the five names on the slide is a CXO title. I'm the chief this officer, and this is the chief that officer. It's the chief that I think, oh, no, you wankers. You this is just some general circle jerk, and nobody is the chief of anything at this point. You guys are just co-founders doing things. And so this there's a there's a seriousness to to this to, to the process that I think is really important. And 
having signals of your seriousness is is really critical. But I, I mentioned that to say that that often stems from the lack of seriousness internal to the founder, is that they're not considering really, who do I really want on my team? You know, do, if you have five or six people on your team and you're barely more than an idea, you're not serious. You're just not serious because you haven't done the hard work of saying, I'm sorry, I know you're my friend, but this isn't going to work out. So I, yeah, just want to say pet, yeah. pet peeve about that. Don't, don't do the make-believe thing. Take it seriously because we want to, you know, we want to, we want to work with people who are, who are serious. Well, and I think that begs having tough conversations at the beginning and those aren't certainly easy things. And I think really what you're hitting on is how, although it might seem like, oh, we're, we're being serious, we're giving ourselves these titles and things that represent that, how that's perceived usually from the community and people that have seen this for a while is it's actually not being that serious about you getting started. Be rather, hey, I'm at the, I'm one of the co-founders and I have this particular skill set and I'm diving in and leveraging that in our scope of work because at that time, Titles don't really matter all that much outside of, you know, <laughs> what you put in it on a, on a slide and, and ultimately speaking to it in that way. And so it's really more so of what, what scope of work are you pushing forward within this startup experience and how are you leveraging each other's networks and experience and expertise to drive that, that scope of work forward, I think is really more important in telling that story. You know, I think it's probably better listed of, hey, what was your past experience? And, and you know, sometimes you have the good old logos of I worked at Intel, I did these types of things, but that speaks more volumes to the breadth of experience and expertise that you're bringing than that you're holding some title in this early, early stage company. Even if, you're, even if your real title is CTO, it's actually far more interesting to not say that you're a CTO, but to say that a former CTO of blank company, if that's what's in your experience, that's interesting. Right. Or, you know, former engineer at Facebook, that's much more interesting than, you know, CTO, which doesn't tell us anything other than what you wanted to put on a business card. But I think you're, you're hitting on something bigger here, which is, yeah, well, go ahead, go for it. I was in, yeah, I think, well, what it, 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 it shows more of an aspiration than what what you're doing, what you've done to validate to you to this point. It's it's looking at this is what I want to be, which is which is great, and I I love the the visionary aspect of it. But it's really when you're presenting to someone, you want to demonstrate how you've de-risked this business. And so it's not that you hold this title; it's about right. that you have this experience that's going to help you systematically test that thing of the business and start up earlier on. And so I think that might be what you're getting at. But um, wanted to go back to kind of where you were, if I didn't answer it, where you thought that was going. Yeah, no, I think that I I agree with all of that, and I think that if we the if we were to take all the pieces that you kind of set out, this idea of, are we, you know, I, I let out this idea of, are we serious? And you said the scope of work and what people actually are doing and, and, and getting done and have gotten done. And you mentioned difficult conversations and all of that are ways of addressing this signal that I think a lot of people, I think you even mentioned that people try to avoid, which is this conversation about equity. Because that's the driver behind all that. Decision-making processes at startups are, are driven in part by equity. You know, your 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 ability to recruit people is is based on equity. It's it's all it all comes down to this conversation about equity. And equity is one of those things that people try to avoid. Either we're all equal owners. There's four of us. We all have twenty five percent, or or something like that. So um, let me just like rattle off some common questions that that we get, and then you can kind of take these in in whatever order you want. But like, there's the I think I kind of answered this one, but it's like how do I I don't have any money, so how do I get somebody to work for me? I think the answer there's equity, but you. Can feel free to elaborate on that more. It's like, but then that begs the question of 
or, or leads to the question, how much equity should I give away? And how do you do that process? What's the legal strictures behind it? When do you give equity? And how much? Blah, it's like so much stuff there with a converse, with a topic that's inherently very uncomfortable. So that th- those are tons of com- Where do you want to take the conversation? Yeah. So I think, I mean, thanks for transitioning that to the equity conversation. I think the first part for me is the the tough conversation around equity. So just one book that I, th- I highly recommend is Crucial Conversations. Really great read and how to have a dialogue around these things. And that's a, it's a tool set that you can use in these early co-founder journeys and really understanding what success looks like. But in terms of, you know, bringing on a co-founder without obviously having maybe any resources to pay anyone, you know, the default answer is equity. And really what that is, is you're giving them a portion of your corporation. So you're filing, you know, some sort of C-corp and you're then giving up a percentage of the company away. But really with that, to answer kind of the who gets equity and when is really this idea of vesting those shares over a period of time. And what that really demonstrates is that it's not just, hey, JDM, you want to be my co-founder and we, you know, get into this relationship to start this startup. I'm not giving you 50% of the company off the get-go is that we equally are getting those shares over a period of commitment of time in demonstrating our work to moving this venture forward. And so, you know, you can ultimately say vest your shares over a three-year period or have some sort of cliff where you get the majority share of the startup. But that vesting vehicle really allows you to demonstrate the, the commitment over time, which is a really key element to demonstrate you know, and, and kind of protect both people from, hey, I, I joined the company and then, you know what, I after six months, I decided to leave and now I own 50% of the company. It's going to be pretty hard to, to raise capital after that when someone who's not involved in the business has 50% say and or holdings of the, of the company. Um, and then in terms of, I think, you know, for me, where I see some of the challenges earlier on is, you know, at a, at a stage when the company's worth zero dollars, you know, it's the the future value that you're excited about, but it's also when you're giving equity away or using that equity as a tool to, to bring on people is it's a signal to how much value they create for the business. So there is that human element of, oh, well, you only think I'm worth 25% of what I'm doing. And maybe that's the technical person that's building the thing. And you're like, wow, well, you know, I, I should be getting more equity. And so it's having those dialogues early on and creating those crucial conversations to, to actually advance that and really understanding that it's both tactical in terms of someone having a vested interest in the business, but also that it's a signal to them as a person, how much they mean to that startup. And so those would be some of my initial thoughts. Anything you want to add in there, JDM would love to to have that as well. Yeah, I think I think you hit on all the all the big pieces. I'll just lay out some natural consequences of that. Yeah, you know, totally. is that you're you're making a lot of decisions up front. You know, you're making decisions about, you know, about vesting and and cliffs and percentages. And how, you know, there's a whole process that you can use to to you know, arrive at that, which I'll, I'll actually come maybe come back to that in a sec because I think that might be interesting to to a lot of you out there. But the, there's a lot of decisions that get made up front in that, and all of those are difficult conversations. They're all really hard conversations that I so <laughs> encourage you to lean into because if you're like, yes, it's going to be a difficult conversation. Yes, it's going to be a hard and uncomfortable conversation. But if you're lucky, it's the first of many, and this will be the easiest one. As as the stakes get bigger, these conversations get harder. This job does not get easier. This is not the hardest conversation you're going to have. If you can't hack it in this conversation with your co-founder, you are not going to make it in startups anyway. So you know, just lean in, get, take it as practice, like that this is a thing that you have to do. But there's a win here. you know. And I think when you're just figuring out 
we have this idea for a thing. We both think it's a good idea. We have no value in the company yet. Defining up, you know, the pie, the proverbial pie, when there's no value behind the pie is not very, very, I think, very efficient use of your time. You know, so it's that idea of, oh, you know, my idea is so brilliant that I got to protect it. I got to protect this idea. And so you own 50% of this idea. And it's like, no, ideas are worthless. And so you just divided up a pie of worthlessness and that you're hoping that you can, through hard work, build it into something valuable. So start that work earlier. And the formalities of all this stuff, I think, come much later. Hashtag not a lawyer. But I think all this stuff comes comes much later. So maybe it, maybe it does make sense to talk about the Founders Pie for a second. So you can Google this and find some resources. Maybe I'll put a, I'll cut a link to some of my favorite articles in the show notes here. But the Founders Pie is basically a way of dividing up that proverbial pie. And the idea is this is a, a formalized mathematical way of starting a, the difficult conversation that you outlined a second ago brilliantly, which is that you you say, okay, these are the things that the scopes of work that are really important to our company. So how much of this is about the the business expertise or domain expertise? How much of this is about the responsibilities? How much of this is about certain skill sets, like the technology versus domain expertise versus, you know, whatever. And you you agree collectively as a group what the relative value of each of those categories are. What's the what's their weight in terms of how we should divide up equity? If if we're working in a a detailed healthcare space, for example, and it's really important to have domain expertise in healthcare, which would make sense, you know, for for say a med tech or a pharmaceutical device or something like that, then you know, you might put a really big weight on that domain expertise that might be really important. And sales or or maybe it's experience in, you know, device in medical device sales, maybe that's something, you know, you just think about these are things really important. You and you give a weight to those. You literally just give a weight. You do this in a spreadsheet. Then once you have that, then you take each of those areas of of importance and you all silently vote for each other what you think that the other person has in terms of their ability to contribute to those things, usually on a scale of one to 10 or something. And then that leads to a discussion because now we have Cameron thinking that I'm a two in something that I think I'm a six at. And so now we're going to have a difficult conversation here to try to arrive at where we think we are. Well, once you get to the end of that, it's just math. The weight times your relative rank times the number of outstanding shares is your equity. That's it. And it becomes this, that you get this math equation at the end. It's not to say that you're a slave to the math, to the math, because you're not, of course, but it gives you a place to start with. We all agreed on these premises. Then we all agreed on our relative contributions to those categories. And now here's what we got at the end of the day. So it's, you can do this with some math that does take some of the discomfort off of it, you know, a little bit. I don't know if you've ever used the Founders Pie or similar tools before. No, I, I love that. I hadn't heard of the Founders Pie, so I definitely will be using that and working with our startups. One of the the tools we use, to, and I think when I think of these tools, it's really ways to facilitate the conversation. So it's, there's multiple ways to derive the answer of who, how much equity does someone get. And I think one of the elements of figuring that out is like, what does success look like to each of the founders as well? Because that's a, a key data point of, you know, if, if I was, if say you and me were starting a, a, a business and it was like, well, I want to exit the company in seven years and you want to have a lifestyle business. Right. Well, that's a very different understanding of one, what that venture means in terms of compensation and what that equity need is to get to that certain point. And so having those conversations earlier 
is is super valuable in figuring out where you're on the same page and where you might be differing and what terms of that that startup might be. And if I'm trying to build a scalable startup, which you know we're targeting here, but you see yourself kind of continuing to grow in that venture, well, you know the the compensation and needs are very different, and so bringing that conversation to the forefront is a, is definitely a need. And so using all of these different tools to facilitate that gives you that context and ultimately the information. And, um, you know, it's, I'm not saying these conversations are going to be easy by any means, but as JDM shared, you know, if you can't have these, you're not likely to, to make it in the end anyways. So might as well have some of those conversations. And that's where, you know, if we're looking at and taking that testing mindset in, this is a test for you and your startup. This is the team test. Can you make it through these conversations and build the foundation where you can ultimately build on going there and going forward? So to- totally. That's that's good stuff. I, I like the the question of is this a scalable startup or is this a lifestyle business? I think it's one that so many founders just aren't actually honest with themselves about even. Forget having the open conversation with their co-founders, which is of course necessary for this too, but they're just not even honest with themselves about it. And I just see this all the time where you get a founder who talks and talks and talks about, I want to build a scalable startup, I want to build this big thing, but all of their behavior is I'm building a lifestyle business. And so you got to really ask, do you want the the scalable startup is I'm going to live on ramen on top ramen for a while because I, and I'm not going to take a salary and I'm not going to do any of that because I'm after the $20 million payout in the future. Whereas right. the, the lifestyle business is like, I, I I'm going to work less hard than that still hard, but I'm going to work less hard than that. I'm going to build something that works well into my life. That's going to generate me some good money and I'm going to have a, you know, I'm going to be collecting good money and that's great. I'm going to have some employees and build a business that I love over time. Neither of those are wrong. Those are just, they're two completely different things and you got to know what right. you, you know, what you want out of that. But, but let's assume for the sake of conversation, that they're building a scalable startup. And so they're going to need co-founders and they've gone through the founder's pie. You know, they're going to start building this. What what actually does make a good founding team? You started with some some stats about the the scary things <laughs> of what happens yeah, we, when, you, when you go wrong. But what is what makes a good what makes a good startup team? Yeah, awesome question. And you know, I think the the first thing that comes to mind is who who's a part of it, and then how many how many people are a part of it. So obviously, starting from one one to then getting a few co-founders or a couple co-founders is a really key element. But it's not just bringing in people that one have the same skill set but the same background and all those things. It's really building that diverse team to ultimately get your your startup off the ground. And I think you know, there's a couple elements. I think when we look at diversity, there's certainly the ethnicity, there's gender, there's all the all the backgrounds and those types of things. And those are valuable because you're really diving into solving a problem. And the more different types of thinking that comes to the looking at that problem, it's going to connect to what your customer base might be and how they might look at the problem. And so it brings in different ways to ultimately connect and build the language and test that early stages of the startup going forward. And so for me, that's really one of the core elements was looking at diversity from the backgrounds, but also that diversity of thought and skill sets that come in really is for me, one of the the main elements going forward. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on kind of the, you know, looking at that building that early stage team outside of kind of the the demographics of that early stage founding team. I think I think you hit all the all the big stuff there. You talked about composition, and you you know the, the in terms of numbers. You talked about in terms of demographics and diversity. So I think we got all those pieces. I think the only other side of that is if we take that composition down to the individual level, so what would make a really 
good co-founder. Who are if we're just talking about people, so let's say I know I need this particular hole filled. And we're I hate to say this, but Cameron, you and I are a group of white guys on this on this call here. So we're like, okay, yes, <laughs> we want and redheads. And we're yeah, white guy redheads. So we are Europeans of the worst variety. And but so let's say we wanted to bring in some diversity and you know, we wanted to all uh, diversity of thought and diversity of experience. And we also wanted to, let's say, have a technical expert because neither one of us are, are, are technical experts. So let's say that we knew that. Okay, that's good. That narrows it down. But what kind of person who has those two things is also going to be make a good co-founder for a startup? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to me is a genuine connection and passion to the problem that's trying to be solved. I think there has to be that connectivity because at such an early stage in any venture you know, and we've mentioned love the problem, not the solution. And really trying to hone into that um, is for me a really key element of having that alignment of trying to dig into the the problem and and bringing the you know diversity from the way that you look at the problem, but also the willingness to have that conversation. I think is really a key component. So when I look at a good co-founder, someone that can have that conversation early on, and you know. I think it it relies on both the co-founders, if there's say only two of them, to have that space to have those conversations and recognizing that we bring different skill sets and mindsets to the to the table. And I think there that starts with self-awareness on both elements was you can only bring out brawn on the right co-founder if you know kind of your own personal gaps and limitations. And then you can bring someone on to to support in that fashion. I think the next element, you know, I talked about the problem. Do you have a similar vision of where you're going? And that kind of goes to, you know, that same element of, you know, doing the founder, you know, scorecard type thing where you're kind of understanding where you may be is that, are you seeing this startup in the same vein and line and ultimately where you're, where you're going? So those would be my initial thoughts of what makes a good co-founder. I know we're, we might talk a little bit about culture and a little bit and, and alignment with values and some of those things, but I think there's that connectivity that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's great. So that, I think we're kind of naturally segueing into the metacognition of team. How should you think about team? And there's a lot of questions that kind of come up here. And they're always, I think, in my opinion, these are the questions that get, I don't know if you have this experience, but the founder's trying to ask something that they don't want to ask because they already know it's wrong. And so they try to ask it in some like sneaky, sneaky way. You know, they'll say, oh, how, how, do, I, how do I bring in co-founders, but where without giving up all of the maybe where I can still make most of the decisions. And it's like, and what they're asking them, what they're really saying is there, how do I, how do I hire employees that I don't pay by calling them (laughs) co-founders? It's really what they're looking for. And so I think there's a legitimate question that's, that's buried in there that we just talked about, like founders pie and equity that we just went through. But that's the, that I think that that's the big mindset thing for me is that you're, that, a co-founder and an employee are two completely different things. And when you're saying we need this mix of skills and you don't have the cash to acquire those things, then ergo, like your co-founder is the, either you have to find a way around it or you have to go with a co-founder, you have to do it with equity. And so if you are doing it with equity, that, that decision's already been made. And that's why I said equity was so central to a lot of the conversations because how decisions get made are a function of equity. 
because at the end of the day, shareholders vote on stuff and I'm leaving aside bylaws and everything, but like shareholders vote on stuff and your vote is by how many shares you have proportional to the rest of the company. So So it becomes really essential that. So you've already kind of made the decision that you need a co-founder. And so you're just like choosing to think about that incorrectly by saying, I want to boss them around as the founder. And, you know, even if you have 51%, you could technically do that. It's still a terrible idea. You don't want to, you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to do that. But there, I think a good question in in there, which is, should it be a co-founder? Should it be an employee? And basically, I just answered that as, well, if you have the money. And I actually think that that is probably the wrong way to think about this. So what would you say the right way to think about it is? Well, I think for me, the first thing it comes to like, what's the relationship that you're trying to to have with the person when you I think when you put a co-founder, there's certainly the the equity component that we've already discussed, but it's also what it, trust are you extending in that decision-making process? And so it's I, when I think of equity, it's also kind of like equity of voice in the way that you're making decisions as a business. And there's you know the tangible bylaw approach to it, but it's also just how much stake does that person feel that they have in driving that business forward? And it's a it's more of the qualitative component of how does someone feel in that space versus it just being you know I have this equity share, therefore I can vote on these types of decisions. But because there's just as a startup, you're moving so fast that it's not always like, oh, let's hold a board meeting and vote on this thing. It's how much latitude do they feel they can make decisions in moving the startup forward and owning that scope of work that's in line with their business expertise. And so I think that that also goes to like the way you're composing your team. If you're bringing on another business person, that's where maybe there's some tension of, oh, well, we have the same skill set and expertise, but I want to be able to tell that person kind of what to do because I feel like I'm more, it was my idea and and therefore, you know, I should have the, the say in where we're going, those types of things. So for me, those are really what I'm looking at in terms of, you know, how to kind of look at the equity component. I think when we're looking at co-founder versus em- employee, I think it's, again, relies on the decision-making process. So if you're going to give that latitude for someone to make a decision or not just a decision, but decisions that drive a a core scope of work forward, that's more in line with the co-founder mentality than someone who is an early employee and you can still, you know, incentivize them or compensate them with equity, but it's less on them making decisions of a scope of work, but rather supporting early stages and maybe a co-founder and driving that work forward. That's how I would kind of distinguish those, those elements of things. And, And ultimately they're their commitment to realizing that where, you know, maybe a, an employee might, you know, early on say, you know what, I, <laughs> this isn't for me. And I, I don't have as many, as much of a vested interest in trying to get this off the ground. Whereas a co-founder, you know, they're in the thick of it and ultimately it's on the line with them as well. So that's how I've, I've kind of would look at the distinguish between those two. It sounds like a lot of what we're dancing around with all these topics is yeah. culture. Mm-hmm. I agree. The, the the good old saying, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. But so for me, that's really a, a key element, you know, in a startup. And one of the the ways that his name is Josh Levine, and he has a great book called Great Great Mondays. And he talks about culture is the cause and effect of every decision that we make. And so for me, it was a really interesting way to look at, you know, if I make the decision to bring someone on as a co-founder and, and provide equity, well, that's a decision that they hold great value to this startup being a you know a success versus an employee. You can still reward them with equity, but you haven't given them the decision making 
power, I would say, in terms of driving that startup forward. You know, also, I think when we look at culture, there's a couple core elements, you know, vision and values for me are a really key thing. And so do you actually have a similar vision of where you see this scalable startup going? Is it we, we all see that we're going to aim for an exit and we're exiting towards this type of venture and being compensated in that way, but also uh, do we have alignment and values in the way that we show up and, and work? Oftentimes, I think culture gets misfitted, especially in the startup space of we're at a cool co-working and we have ping pong and we go out for drinks. That's not really culture. It's tied to how do you drive your work forward and what are the behaviors that you recognize and reward in the way that you're ultimately building the venture? And is there alignment in those types of things? You know, I'm someone who's very always forward about my my personal values. So I stand for love and service. And that's the way that I show up in the way that I ultimately try to build the teams that are around me. And, and I, you know, do that in the behaviors that I ultimately try to do. So I think that that's a key element for any founder that's building their business is not just to say, you know, here, these are our values as we're building our startup, but how are you rewarding that earlier on in your your venture? I really want to kind of triple underline the something you said at the beginning of that, just to make sure it doesn't get lost. And that's this idea. A lot of people think that culture is something that you write down, that it's this, oh, we stand for these things. And that's our culture. It's like, well, no, that's not how culture works because culture is just the, the sum total of all the decisions we've made to date. That's it. That's what culture is. And so that's why you can't just shift culture with one thing because it's the sum total of all of the decisions you've made. So you got to make a lot of decisions. If you want to change culture, it's going to be a lot of future decisions to outweigh the decisions of the past, which means that from day one, you are you have a culture. It's not something that you build someday. From day one, as a founder of one, you have a culture. And when you bring on a co-founder, that now culture is changing. That culture has fundamentally changed. And it's be, it's always, it is always an is. Culture is not a, a will be or an ought to be. It's an is. It's what we have right now. And that's where, like you said, culture eats strategy for breakfast, which I, I forget who said that. It's an, it's an old guy. Peter Drucker. Was it, was it actually Peter Drucker? Yeah. Okay. So. so, yeah. Management consultant and the ever quotable Peter Drucker. So, and I think it was it was from one of his books, right? His book was called Culture Eat Strategy for Breakfast. I think. Okay. Anyway, so the idea that Culture Eat Strategy for Breakfast is, is true because the idea is that you set up that you can say, okay, well, we're going to go and accomplish these awesome things, and if you don't have the culture for it, then then that thing fails. And I, that is true, but there's a flip side of that that is that is missing, and that that is that I think strategy stress tests culture. And so if you if you lay out this vision for we're going to accomplish this thing and the culture like that big audacious hairy goal that you have the vision that you have that you say that we're going to set out all this work to do when you try to put that into your culture it's going to either work or it's not but when that strategy interacts with culture it's going to create strain and stress because it's a new decision that you're making and that's how this works and that that strain and that stress gives us data and that the, so the idea that it didn't work on our culture, therefore the strategy is wrong, means that strategy is a slave to culture, and that's actually not true. It's a loop. And so as you get data back out of the out of the culture world, when you set the strategy and you get this data out of the culture world, you can now pivot on that and change the strategy to align with the culture, or you can change the culture. And again, talked about that. That's that takes a bit of work, but it's a thing that you can do. And so that it's always two levers that you can pull at any one time. And I just think that that's it's just. I just wanted to really underline that idea that the culture is what you have. It's not what you write down on paper and you have a culture 100%, even if you're a solo founder. 
Totally. Well, and I just tying it back to our last episode on experimenting and testing. It's such a key element to to driving any of of that action. So are we actually going to continue to put ourselves in this space to then have new decisions on this daily basis of, hey, we're we're going to test for this failure. And are we actually as a you know, say startup valuing failure is learning, right? That's one thing to write that down. But then it was like, right. oh, well, when we run a test and we fail, do we fall apart or do we say, hey, no, this is this is data and information for us to go do the next test. Yes. And so really thinking about that as a as a key component to to your venture and ultimately how you operate as a as a team. And I think I just underscore is that it's the the behaviors and I um and I'm actually gonna put it to, to you the way you've defined traction is the the behavior yeah. component and I I'm gonna leave it to you to to share because I think that that's just a key component of how you could underline a culture around that. Yeah, that's actually great. I had I hadn't made that that connection in my head, but yes. So I, I always define traction as a behavior and not an outcome. And you know, it's like the the metaphor that I use is that you know a healthy relationship is not an outcome; it's a behavior. It's things that you have to do along the way. You know, good grades are an outcome, but being a good student is a set of behaviors. And it's the same thing in traction. Sales is an outcome. But the, but traction is a set of behaviors that we engage in. And those set of behaviors is just a synonym for culture. And so if you want to have a culture for traction, then you have to have all these other components that are part of it. And one of them, like you just said, is experimentation. And so if you're, if the, when we, I had completely forgotten in our last episode, we, we actually structured the conversation around experimentation as you need to have a culture of experimentation. And what that means is that you actually make decisions that are based on experimentation, meaning you do experiments first. That's a thing. Then you get data back. That's also a thing. And then you have conversations about what does this mean with that data that comes back, which leads to further experimentations. And so if you're if you're doing that process, if you're engaging that process, then you have a culture of experimentation. If you fail on any one of those, then you no longer have a culture of experimentation. And therefore, you no longer have that culture of traction. And if you want a culture of traction, you have to make decisions that align with the goal that you state that you have and not just state it as a goal and then do other things that are in a lot of ways anathema to that, you know, the procrastination disguised as productivity thing, the well, make work. That, that la- I think that last part for me ties to one element of culture for me is like, how do you recognize and reward uh, the core elements of your culture. So if you if you value experimentation, then celebrate that you've successfully ran an experiment and you had learnings versus it being, well, we only celebrate the experiment if it's validated. Well, then you're not you're you're rewarding or recognizing the wrong thing that actually uh, is saying you're not actually valuing the the process of experimentation and and going through that process. And so building those structures into your your business at an early stage is going to set those types of things and push your team to do the things that you believe are most core to the startup and succeeding. So I think there's a lot of, you know, synergies, I guess, between culture and traction and really this founding team. It's a great, great connection. I think. Well, it's the same thing with hiring. So, you know, you laid out this behavior, like if we want to have a culture of experimentation, we need to celebrate when we do experiments, even if we don't like the results, or maybe especially when we don't like the results. If you say you want to have a culture of experimentation, that means when you hire people or get co-founders, that they too need to have a value for that experimentation or the decision you've just made is that whatever else that they're bringing to the table is more important than your culture of experimentation. You're intentionally sidelining it. And I think a lot of people don't just don't take understand that that's a very direct connection between the two. You've made that choice 
and that experimentation was less important and now you have to live with it. Like that's just how this works. Culture is the sum of our decisions and you just made a decision. Totally. Well, I think one last thing, and then I think that's a great segue was I think we often talk about also culture. It, you know, it is a recognition of the decisions that we make, but it's also the decisions we decide not to make. And so recognizing that if we don't reward certain things, that's also a demonstration of what our culture is. But one of the things you're you know, talking about bringing on employees, I think when we look at, we've talked a lot about team as kind of the co-founder element, but in an, any early stage startup, there's so much more to that early stage team. There's everything from you know, the first employees and, and you know, people that are joining us as non-co-founders. You have advisories. So what are some of those people that are joining our team outside and how do we bring them on to really support our startup in, in growing forward? Right. Because look, one of the things that investors are looking for, everybody knows investors are looking for team, but I think most people think that that just means investors are looking at the founders, which they are, but they're also looking at all these other components that also go into, into team. So it is your, it is your co-founders. Do you are, if you're, if you're solo, it's harder to get investment. I mean, early, like, you know, friends, family, and fools, and maybe, maybe a, an angel round or a pre-seed round maybe. But once you get beyond that, it's actually really hard to get funding if you're, if you're solo. So there's that component of, you definitely need the co-founders, but also your ability to hire employees. So as you get further on and, and you start paying people to do work, your ability to acquire good talent is important. So you can, if you hire a C2O who was not a co-founder, A, you've hired a really critical position for your, let's just say it's a software startup. You've hired a really critical position for that. And at the same time, you're giving them some kind of equity. It's going to be sub 1% or whatever, but you're still giving them some equity for this, even though they're not technically a co-founder. And um, so like, that's a really big signal is your ability to pull off that thing, your ability to acquire talent. So that matters too. But then they're also looking at, at you know, the, the logos, are, are there any accelerators or funds or anything that are backing you? Are there investors that are backing you? Because all, all of that speaks to your credibility as well that, oh, he thinks you're interesting. I think therefore maybe you are interesting. I should listen a little bit more carefully. But then also one of the things that I think is just ignored too is the is the advisory board. So maybe we should talk about that a bit. Yeah, no, I, I love it. There's a the first thing that comes to mind is it's when we're thinking of our team outside of our co-founders, and I think even in that case as well, is often it's visualized as the pitch deck, right? You have a team slide and then you have your advisory board. And I think one of the things it's not just a matter of checking the box that I have these people as advisors, um, because a lot of times investors know those people and it's like, are those people actually committed to supporting you in this ventures or are you just putting their name and face on the on the slide? And so thinking about it through that element is really diving into what role are they playing and how do I actually engage this group of people? And so, you know, I think advisory boards is one of the really key elements to opening up your startup to succeeding. And I think part of that is there's the internal element of them helping fill knowledge and experience that your team might not have. That could be technical, that could be past startup successes, it could be a variety of things. So that's kind of the internal approach. And then I think the second thing around an advisory board is looking at it from a network approach is what doors can they open to help accelerate you in your learning process. So say you want to get in front of business to business customers in the med tech space. Well, you might not have a network in that space, but if you bring on an advisory board who says, you know what, I have a, a you know, a history of selling into to the med tech space and working with these healthcare institutions, they might be able to open that door and then ultimately be able to help you test your, your product or understand if there is a there there. And so for me, that's really two ways that I look at kind of leveraging and utilizing your advisory board. But I think it's not just a matter of saying, hey, 
you know, JDM, I'm, you know, building the startup, you want to be on my advisory board, it's actually digging into what does that relationship look like? And again, having that kind of forthright conversation is this is what I'm expecting of you. And this is how I'm rewarding you for that type of work. I do believe there is sometimes great value in compensating them. That could be again, using a vesting schedule to ultimately build on that relationship. It's not a matter of hey, come join my advisory group. And now I'm going to give you all this equity, that being, you know, 2% or less, whatever that might be. But diving into again, what is that relationship? And what do they need to do in order to earn that and then vice versa? And usually they're not, you know, in it for the equity, they're in it to really support you as a startup and get you to where you need to go. But those for me are really some of the key things when I dive into advisory boards. Um, And I actually, you know, would love to share and we could put it maybe in the show notes as we just had a, a great workshop series with Kim Box, who's on our advisory board at the Carlson Center, a really great conversation around some of the blocking and tackling of that. But would love to hear your thoughts, JDM, around advisory boards. Yeah, let's definitely get that in the show notes. We opened by saying that startups that have an advisory board are 29% more likely to to succeed. And that's that's a that's big. That's big, right? That's that's big. It's almost a third. It's huge. It's huge. But the one of the things that that you were kind of hinting at there is that it, an advisory board is not the same as saying, oh, I've ha- I have some advisors. That's not right. the same. I, I, I advise a thousand startups a year or something like, like that's a, that thing. Sure, I, I advise them. But I'm on the advisory board of very few. And that's right. because the, what to be on an advisory board means that there is some type of relationship to use to use your word Cameron but then also there's a there's a cadence and there's an expectation that goes with that we're going to meet as an example once a month we're going to have these conversations we're going to give this we're going to give this kind of update to them and then they are going to give us their advice and feedback we're going to have an ask of them maybe it's that that structure because then you get those two things that you're saying you get the feedback and the advice and best practices and experience and all that. And you don't have to say yes to any of that. They, they, they do not control you in any way, but they are going to give you their advice. And the benefit of having them be compensated with a little bit of equity that vests over time is that it it aligns their interests with yours so that their their compensation is only <laughs> valuable as compensation if you're successful. So those two things are, are aligned well. And then the second thing, in addition to that advice and best practices and feedback and so forth, is that network, which is huge. It could be connection with investors. It could be connections with with different funds and, and accelerators and people who could advise on this little thing like, oh, you know what, talk to so-and-so because you can really help with, with running social media ads, like that kind of thing. Or I know a great company that does, you know, it's that kind of thing. But then it's also... The, you know, if you have a domain expert, you know, somebody who has decades of experience in the industry that you're trying to serve, they know tons of people. And if they believe in you and they believe what you're working on enough to be on their advisory board and you have a reasonable ask, they will open their Rolodex to you because it's also in their best interest to do so. That, that's why you get that amazing 29% increase just by having an advisory board. But you don't, you can't have that from idea. So when should you? form an advisory board? When would you tell somebody, hey, do you have an advisory board? When would you even ask the question of somebody? Yeah, I think it, I mean, I don't have a specific at this point, but I think it's, I think it's when you start to get into elements that are less testing of a problem solution. If you're just figuring out with early stage customers, usually you don't need a formal advisor, but it's when you're starting to get into developing the solution or putting that solution into the market to get feedback where you really need access to networks, but also to 
decipher information that you might not have the expertise to go through. So it's like I'm getting this data and they're using language or there's just things that I'm not understanding because it's it's more domain specific than I might be able to tackle. And I think that that's usually a right area. I think, and then also the more formal you're getting into the actual investment process. So say you're actually you know, raising a seed round and you're needing to demonstrate some of that pure experience and you know, domain expertise that an advisory board might help bring in, I think is a really key element. So those would be some of the touch points. I don't think there's a one tried and true. This is the point that you need to, to do it, but I think it's at certain junctures of your business that are kind of like these inflection points of, okay, well... You know, I could do the problem solution fit conversations pretty much on on my own, right? I don't need a ton of advice in that space, but it's more when things get a little more technical or there's just a, a leap in information that you're needing that you just don't have that experience around would be my initial thoughts. So basically what you're saying is once shit gets real. Yeah, I think that, that that's a, a fair way to that. That's usually how you, you would put it versus how I, <laughs> I say so, when shit like, gets real, get an advisory board. <laughs> that's when. So we've been talking about all these non co-founder team components, components to team that aren't just your co-founders, like early employees, your ability to hire. We talked about the advisory board. We talked a little bit about investors. They're part of your team as well. And any funds or accelerators or, or anything, some mentors and, and coaches that you're working with, which are the advisors that aren't on an advisory board, right? Those are mentors, very different. And those, by the way, also work better when you have some type of formal relationship, like you meet with your mentor once a month or something. But so we have all those, but I think that there's one other part of your team that is just almost never talked about as part of your team. And I think that's a shame. And that would be your customers. I think your customers are actually on your team. And I can I can I can I rant for a second? Is that please, all right? Please. All right, I'm gonna rant for a second. So one of us like w some more stats. So we didn't have these at the top of the show, but here's some more scary stats. So one is that approximately 70% or so of startups just scale too early. And then they blow up and, and, and fail. 70% of startups scale too early. And, and for a lot of them, that leads to all kinds of other problems that eventually tank the, the startup. It Around 42% of startups fail just because of a lack of market need. So they actually put something out to market and try to sell it when nobody wants it. But don't waste your life building something no one wants. Like 42% of startups do it anyway. <laughs> Yay. So like there's that too. And then also the flip side of that, the positive, the positive way to say both of those two things is that the companies that do actually go out and talk to customers and get early feedback and, and prioritize the process of getting that feedback from their customers have a two to three time, depending on where you look, higher chance of success. So you can double or triple your chances of success by listening to customers. Now that should not be a surprise to anybody who's listening to our show right now that that matters, but that, that so that you can kind of see, oh, there are little customers are part of our team because they're helping us with the thing. And that, yeah, that's true, but I don't actually mean it that lame. I actually mean it much more literally is that the reason that it's two or three times more likely to succeed when you actually get that feedback from customers because when you're doing something innovative, you don't have the information in advance. And what you're actually doing, and this idea of product market fit, right? It doesn't mean find a market for your product. 
And it doesn't mean find a product for your market. It means product market fit. Both of them have to match each other. So when you engage in the process of the startup, this whole design thinking process to find product market fit, you're engaging in co-creation with your customer. You get a group of people out there and together you create the product and the market, tweaking both over time until you get it right. That very literally makes your customers part of your team because they are co-creating your product with you. Only they don't get equity. And so it's the best way to get data to, to move yourself forward is actually by leveraging all of the free labor who, if you do this right, will pay you for the opportunity to make you rich. They will pay you for the opportunity to make you rich. And so customers very literally are a member of any startups, early stage startups team. And that's a really important component to this as well. So I don't know if you want to react to that. Tell me I'm full of shit. No, I, I like it. I think it, I mean, it's in line with the whole, you know, customer discovery process. But I, I think where my mind goes is that's really dependent and doing that right is really based on having the right culture to actually build those relationships. And it's not just a matter of like sucking out data from your customers because that's not a relationship. That's a, a one-way relationship. If I have information and I take that and do something for me, but actually helping bring in and sharing with your customers or potential customers where you're going along that process, I think is a really key element. And that's where you're actually building that kind of you know bi-directional relationship that I think is actually having them as part of the team versus it being like, oh, I take information and extract it. And then yes, I turned it into a startup because they might, things might've changed along the way and you didn't have that relationship to actually solve that particular need. So that was really my main element is, you know, and especially as a, as a early stage team, you as a founder or co-founder team might do that. But when you bring on early stage employees, are they having that same culture to go and build those relationships with customers and have that co-creative process versus saying, oh, no, this is the solution. This is what ultimately is going to solve your problem versus taking it from that customer-centric view. So that would just be my only addition. And I think that it's a really interesting addition to Teams. And oftentimes is actually I think, you know, we, if I'm looking at kind of like a pitch deck or something, it was like, oh, well, here's our strategic partners that are, that we're using to grow or whatever that might be. And so those are really great ways to, to, to speak to that your realm of influence and connection as a startup is much greater than just the, the few people that are working on it. And that's yes. ultimately to an investor or anyone that you're presenting. It's another data point for them to say, oh, you've started to de-risk this. You have trust with these customers or these partners or whatever that might be, which goes a long way to saying, yes, this thing has some legs and ultimately can, can move forward. Well, I cannot think of a better point to wrap this conversation on than that one. So we're going to leave the conversation there, but this would not be an episode of Zero Detraction if we did not take a few moments to talk about something completely frivolous. So, Cameron, what is your frivolous thought for today? Well, I think I think we it's like the frivolous and not so frivolous thoughts is what maybe we should reframe this. <laughs> the, the frivolous, since I don't, optionally since frivolous. I'm not as as yeah, which since mine aren't usually as frivolous as yours, so I'll, I'll caveat that. Um, but mine was in some some wedding planning came across that the word aloha means love in Hawaiian. And for me, as you know, as I shared and kind of ties to the culture element, my personal values are love and service. And so for me, it was like this aha moment that 
every time it, you know, I've been saying aloha to, to people was this way of saying love and recognition, which I thought was really empowering. And I think the, the, you know, I always try to tie it to, to startups as well. So that's where my lack of frivolous components come in. But thinking of the power of language is such a key component to, to startups. But for the fun and real frivolous thought, I'm going to pass it back to, <laughs> to you, JDM, to, to end us on a, on a fun note. I, I, do, I do love that. I, I did not know that at all. I had no idea. I just assumed that it was a generalized greeting and didn't have a, a real meaning behind it. But now I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do you say shredder of business models in Polynesian? That's really what I, <laughs> that's really what I want to know. <laughs> well, I can tell you Aloha is not in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, well, yes, in true JDM fashion, my frivolous thought is truly frivolous today. So in our very first episode, this is episode four, so back in episode one, I said that I had just started Star Trek Picard. And in the time we recorded the last one to the time recording this one, I had finished it. I finished Star Trek Picard. And and so I I, op- I had a question last time that I answer now, but I am going to say fair warning, there will be some spoilers in this. So if you're if you're listening right now and you have yet to see Star Trek Picard and unlike Cameron, you intend to watch it, then now might be a good time to switch to the next podcast because there will be spoilers. I can't avoid it. But anyway, the question that I asked was, I'm not sure if I like this show because I'm, I'm grew up on the next generation. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Trekkie. I've never owned a uniform and I've never been to a convention, but I can still consider myself a Trekkie. And those, those, those are important caveats, Cameron. Don't laugh. Those are, those are important caveats. There's a different category of Trekkie out there and nothing against them. I'm just not one of them, but I am a big fan. And the, so anytime a reunion comes back, you know, it's, it's, are they going to ruin it is the question that you have to ask yourself. And I was asking that question. And when I had, when we recorded episode one, I'd seen a few episodes. I, I don't know, maybe two, three episodes at the time. And I was like, I don't know where they're going with this yet. And they actually kept that going for most of the season until the until basically the end of the penultimate episode. You really did not know where they were going with it. And they even kept some some surprise twists for the final episode of the season as well. And so to, to, to round it back in case anyone's curious, to close the story loop on my opinion on Star Trek Picard is I thoroughly enjoyed watching the season. I did, but it was nostalgia porn. And so it was very much just leaning into let's layer in as much nostalgia as we can. And it was not, it was while it was gratuitous, it was all well justified and all fit into the story, which is actually pretty unusual. Most of the time when it gets that gratuitous with shows, it, it's not. And, and it's just awkward and uncomfortable. In this case, they actually, it all made narrative sense which was good, but it was also still a bit gratuitous at the end. And so, so much so that even a really big super fan, you know, of, of this still, even still, I was like, okay, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit much, but I did thoroughly enjoy watching it. So that's a, so what do I think about it? I don't, I don't know. It just, it had so much of the, it just had so much of the, of the, of the stuff in there that I loved growing up that is now different. It's, I don't know. It's a little weird, but I did thoroughly enjoy watching it, which is the best you could say out of a TV show. But to turn this into a slightly less frivolous thought, Cameron, do you know why I like Star Trek? I know you've never seen an episode of Star Trek in your life. Do you know why I like Star Trek? No clue outside of that you identify as a Trekkie now. So. I, do, I do identify as a Trekkie. Again, never been to a convention, never owned a uniform. But so, okay, I'm not a big sci-fi fan. So I don't go and watch all the sci-fi shows. In fact, most sci-fi shows I have not seen. Most sci-fi movies that come out, I have not seen. Star Trek is an exception. And I watch Star Wars because everybody watches Star Wars. But it's not like I'm a Star Wars super fan or anything. 
But uh, but the reason I like Star Trek is because, and this will tie back into your aloha here, is that in Star Trek, the hero and the villain is always humanity. The 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 thing that's bad, the thing that's going to undo us is always us and the weaknesses of humanity. And the thing that always saves the day in the end is also a return to that humanity, to what Lincoln called our own best selves. He was obviously talking about Star Trek, Lincoln was. So he had the foresight. He did. He was ahead of his time in so many ways. It's great. Well, anyway, enough about enough about Star Trek. That's that's it. We're gonna we gotta we gotta call it. We gotta call it here. This is this is just terrible. So that's it for this episode. You know, thanks so much for listening. Make sure that you are followed or subscribed in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now. If this is on YouTube, hit the hit the like button on that. Make sure you're subscribed here as well. If email is your bag, you can subscribe to us on Substack. But if you found this helpful, if you found this interesting, then do us a favor, leave a review. Not only would we love your feedback and your thoughts, we're always trying to make this show better, but also it helps other people find the show, which of course is one of the reasons we're doing this is we have we have things that we want to say and we would love to get those in front of in front of more people. So send us your thoughts, help us get the word out. That's it. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks time. Until then, have a fantastic, fantastic couple of weeks. And Cameron, thanks for hanging out again today. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Always enjoy our conversation and hope we created value for all you listeners. And thank you for subscribing and following us. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.